It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to KSL. I'm your guest host, Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute, and excited to stand in today for Lee. We're talking about some fun stuff. Now, I want to take you back a couple months ago to something that happened to a little boy named Lyndon. Maybe you heard about this in the uh, commercial over the break. In the last hour, we were talking about drugs, and we referenced mental health. You know, over the summer, there's been a lot of police protests and riots and a lot of meetings uh, up at the Capitol and with stakeholders talking about what can be done to reform how policing is done because there are these underlying problems to deal with. Well, if you remember the story, it was September 4th, just over two months ago, that uh, Golda Barton called the police to ask for help uh, while her son was having a mental health episode. Uh, you know, they arrived, they intervened, and things didn't go quite the way that mom had planned. Let's listen to some audio from the body camera footage that's tough to hear. Pull your hands out, dude. Pull your hands out. Now, keep in mind, Lyndon is a 13-year-old autistic boy, and his mother was asking for help. In fact, as Lyndon was shot and curling up on the ground, he thought he was going to die. He said, tell my mom I love her. And, you know, there's a lot of allegations now being had. We're going to get into it in just a minute uh, about a new development in this story. Let's first listen to a statement from Chief Brown from a press conference shortly after this shooting happened to see what the police chief had to say. As a police department, we want to be partners with those who provide mental health services. As a community, we need to find a way forward. Now, the question is, you know, is that the right response? Uh, and, and what's the difference between a response and an action? Uh, put yourself in the shoes of, of the mom who called, seeking support and help. She couldn't deal with this 13-year-old boy on her own. She needed help. Uh, maybe she shouldn't have called police. Maybe there should have been other resources provided. But, you know, Chief Brown made, made that statement. Let's listen to what mom had to say. They're trying to say... Um, they're so sorry or they're you know they feel they they really feel for me or whatever but the point is is that they don't they don't understand really they 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 just are saying that because i don't know why because it's really it's hollow words it's like just completely just like they're just saying it because because it's almost like if you get caught doing something wrong then suddenly you feel so bad but it's 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 too late it's too late to feel bad there's a new development in the story. Uh, just recently we learned that uh, the family of young Lyndon has filed a federal lawsuit against the Salt Lake City Police Department and the officer who was believed to have been shot and injured, the, the, the teenager, the 13-year-old boy. To discuss this, we're joined by Paul Nelson, KSL News Radio reporter. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, there's a lawsuit. Why, why uh, federal court, and, and what, are, what is the family alleging here in this lawsuit? Well, the family has been alleging, and the attorneys for the family, they are saying, hey, look, if you watch the video, the video shows that the police knew 
that the boy, uh, you know, was on the autism spectrum, that he had sensory overload and that he was going to run from police. But uh, the mother was actually trying to tell uh, everybody he's not a threat to the public. He's just having an episode. And so the family and the attorneys, they they don't believe that uh, that potentially deadly force was actually necessary at all. Now, I had a chance to speak with the attorneys today. And I asked, well, how is there a specific dollar figure that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, we haven't really pinpointed that just yet. Because if you look at what uh, Lyndon is still dealing with, he still has uh, his left arm. He can't use his left arm at all. He still has bullets in his body. He has damage to his lower limbs that it's severe. And the bullets in his body are actually causing internal injuries. So he's still dealing with a lot of stuff. So as far as the exact dollar figure, they don't really know yet. But... He did mention that it wouldn't surprise them if the dollar figure goes past uh, what was um, what was issued and what was settled on, I should say, in the case of Lauren McCluskey. So it looks like it could be in the tens of millions of dollars. You know, that's very unfortunate uh, for the taxpayers because ultimately it, it's the public that has to pay for these things. That's among the reasons, I think, why a lot of people are calling for reform. It's why Lyndon's mom perhaps felt the way that she did in, in that clip we listened to where she feels like it's one thing to say, you know, these reassuring words that we want to change. It's another thing to uh, actually change. Is there any element that the attorneys are making or the family that they want uh, some type of form, reformed policies or reformed laws, or are they simply seeking kind of the financial compensation for all these damages? Well, the attorneys did say almost exactly that, kind of, again, what happened in the Lauren McCluskey case. They wanted the University of Utah to admit that the mistakes were done on their part, and they are trying to get the police department to acknowledge, and according to their words, there's a big disconnect, apparently, between what the public believes is right and what the... um, and what the Salt Lake City Police uh, is allowed to do in the their attorney's words. They say, um, one of the statements that they put out said, Lyndon's shooting a glaring example that the Salt Lake City Police Department and its officers don't recognize the issues that they face and they haven't accepted the need for change or reform. So it's not just the money, although they do say, basically, sometimes the only remedy is money. That's interesting. Uh, I, I believe the the they note that you know just weeks prior to this shooting, uh, Mayor Mendenhall had called for you know de-escalation training, uh, body camera reform. And when I watched the body camera footage shortly after it was released, it's interesting to see one officer you know say to the other on camera, "Oh yeah, we were just trained about this." Uh, have you talked with the family? I imagine that's part of their frustration is that there needs to be better training and that there ought to be a different response here. Well, the um, the comments are, are going through the attorney's office for right now. But uh, as you mentioned, what you could hear on the on the um, body camera video, you can hear the officers, the other officers, even having doubts about approaching him. For example, I, transcript from the Deseret News. Uh, one officer said, if it's a psych problem and the mom is out of the house, I don't see why we should even approach, in my opinion. I'm mm-hmm. not about to get in a shooting because the boy is upset. Sorry. And the other uh, and another officer replied, yeah, especially when he hates cops. Uh, So and and one last um, officer was quoted as saying, if no one is in the house, no one is in danger. Sorry, I'm not about to get into a shooting. Now, in some lawsuits, like, for example, remember uh, Alex Wubble, she was the nurse at the University of Utah Hospital that was detained because she wouldn't do a blood draw. Right. right. Um, In in some cases, what will really be kind of the nail in the coffin for, uh, say, a police department is if officers are heard on the video 
doubting whether or not that that approach is the right way to go about it. And that is kind of what happened in the Alex Wobbles case, where you had officers right. that were saying things like, I don't know if this arrest would actually stick. So I'm not sure if it's if the arrest was justified. So that's when attorneys would say, OK, that's when it becomes uh, it crosses the line from an arrest to potential assault when the officer knows that this is not the, the it's not the justified approach. So in this case, if those words were on the body cam video, it's pretty damaging for the Salt Lake City Police Department, in, in, at least in this lawsuit, as far as concerned. Now, of course, I'm not a lawyer and I don't have a crystal ball, so I could be way out of my element. But that seems to be a key thing in successful lawsuits against police departments. Paul Nelson, KSL News Radio reporter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Stick with us on the other side of the break. We're going to be talking with Representative Kara Berkland about this exact issue and potential legislation to come. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute. Excited to join you and keep digging into this topic. Before the break, we talked about young Lyndon, 13-year-old autistic boy, shot many times by police as he was running away from them unarmed. Uh, sparking a conversation uh, that had already been ignited by George Floyd and the protests that followed and Breonna Taylor, which we'll talk about in the next segment. The question then is, are the current laws in the right place? Um, are there correct protocols to hold officers accountable when excessive force is being used? Should we be using police for mental health issues? Uh, or should we have a different response that doesn't lead to these types of altercations? We invite you to weigh in on the conversation through the Utah Community Credit Union text line. You can text your comments to 57500. I'm very excited to be joined now by Representative Kara Berkland in the Utah legislature, who is tackling this exact issue in the upcoming session. Representative Berkland, thanks for joining us. I appreciate that, Connor. Thanks for having me. So why would you, uh, a newer legislator, want to tackle uh, such a topic as this? This is a big issue. Tell us kind of what your interest in the topic is before we dig in. Great. Well, thanks. I, you know, like many of us saw what happened with George Floyd, we saw the emotion that was a part of that for so much of society. Um, I have a son who foster care, and I'll be honest. The very first time we took him to a pediatrician post-adoption was the first time I was told by a doctor that he has fetal alcohol syndrome. And I will never forget the doctor's words. He said, it's not a matter of if your child goes to jail, it's when. Now, I got to say, I don't agree with that doctor. I believe you can look into the side that's not something I believe in. However, those words still come to my mind constantly. These people, men, women, people's children, they're not always being taken care of by the people we are expecting to treat them with the dignity they deserve. Now, I, I love our law enforcement community here in Utah. You know, they have been so receptive to this legislation, and I, I want to commend them on that. And this is not a anti-police bill. This is an accountability bill. And I really appreciate that they have respected my desire to come forward and work this out. And, and some of this has come directly from officers themselves saying, this is what I'd like to see. We do have bad actors, but we need to clean up the house so that those of us who are here doing good can finally start being respected for our good work. So that's what it's all to me. Let's unpack this a little bit. You, you've referenced the bill that you're planning to run. Give us just a little summary of what you're looking to, to get your colleagues to sign on uh, to change the law and do. 
So the, one of the first things I think is the biggest thing is it does require a police officer to try to de-escalate a situation before resorting to force. I've gotten pushback on that. Um, some officers have said that I need to be better trained to understand these scenarios, and that's okay. I, I would gladly head to um, the attorney general's office and do some of their training again on, on these tense situations. But this is... This isn't to, again, tie the hands of officers. This is to make sure that people are receiving quality help when they need it, when they call 911, when they ask for police officer assistance. Uh, another thing that this hospital does is it allows officers to make a report. It actually requires them, despite the chain of command, to say, hey, officer so-and-so did this. This is against our code of conduct. I need to report this without worrying about any backlash because it is codified in law that I must do this. I see. So then if, uh, one if other one piece, off, it, go, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I say one other piece to it that I think is important that is a, a passion of mine. If somebody is complying, if they're in handcuffs, if they're not posing a threat to anybody else, no more force can be used against them. Like that, that to me, I don't know why we don't, we didn't have that in the bill we passed earlier this summer, we said no kneeling on people's necks. That's great. Fine. Let's not kneel on people's necks. But I think we need to go a step beyond that. You know, no officers in Utah have ever been accused or charged with kneeling on someone's neck and killing them. But we do have cases where officers use excessive force on somebody who's on their knees with their hands in the air, completely complying with law enforcement. Interesting. And, and, and that is kind of, I think, the issue, right? Once someone has been detained, once police are safe, there's no threat to bystanders. Maybe the person's in the back of the, the police vehicle. Maybe they're you know prone, meaning like they're laying down on their stomach with their, their hands handcuffed behind their back. They don't pose a threat. It would be very inappropriate. I think most people would agree that if an officer were to like kick that person in the face or punch them or kneel on their neck, uh, as happened with George right. Floyd. So that does seem a, a fairly common sense uh, approach. You're bringing this bill forward at a time when there's heightened sensitivities all around. Obviously, there have been a lot of riots and protests and so forth. And then maybe the law enforcement community, right? They, they may feel picked on or targeted or Utah officers may feel like those things are happening elsewhere, not in Utah. It's a, it's a very tricky climate to, to bring this uh, issue forward, of course. Uh, give us kind of a, a brief synopsis about the conversations you've been having uh, with law enforcement and the prospects you, you feel like uh, this bill might fare in the upcoming session. I've had really great conversations with law enforcement. There, there's some things that they are you know, a fan of or they do probably feel a little bit picked on or perhaps that this, this is not uh, legislation that takes in all accounts. You know, that one situation was brought up where there was a guy in the back of the car on his stomach and he started kicking the windows and trying to damage the car and potentially cause an accident by his flailing around. Obviously, that's not what this case is talking about. This legislation would not apply to somebody who's creating a threat. So I think, like you said, there's a heightened sense of, of um you know, all eyes on law enforcement, and mm -hmm. people are, are leery of them. That's not what this is about at all, and so I want to respect that. And they, they've been very good to work with me and listen, and I've made it clear to them, look, if this is not the right legislation, if there's other legislation out there that you think strikes a better balance, I'm all for it. I want to get behind it. But I want to make sure we have legislation that is balanced and it's fair. It's not emotional or knee-jerk. It's just taking care of and codifying 
what's already happening in a lot, if not all of our communities across the state. And, you know, I think by coming together, and, and I welcome any other representative who has uh, any kind of use of force legislation, let's meet. Let's bring in law enforcement. Let's bring in any organization that wants to see at the table. Let's talk about we, what we each have brought forward in the legislation and pick what's best and what's proper and what Utah needs right now. Representative Berkland, you're to be commended for trying to make this non-emotional because as we listen to young Lyndon's mom, as we listen to all the people who've been deeply passionate about this, it's been very emotionally charged. But you're right. When people sit around the table and talk about the actual uh, use cases and, and examples and problems, uh, we've seen it up on Capitol Hill time and time again. People from different perspectives, law enforcement and activists and advocates can find those middle grounds where we can actually get some good policy done. Uh, so commend you for, for working on that. We look forward to following that bill in the upcoming session. Representative Kara Berkland, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Connor. Take care. So this is a very important uh, topic and an outgrowth of what we've been talking about all along when we're talking about mental health problems, when we're talking about the war on drugs. But it just doesn't only uh, stay with the use of force when there's that altercation when police are uh, encountering someone and handcuffing them and, and you know having to use some violence. The question also is, well, what about when someone is in the four walls of their home? What is kind of that castle doctrine where someone, you know, is inside their castle? Can police come in? Under what circumstances? We're talking about no-knock warrants. Stick with us on the other side of the break as we get into it and assess whether more changes are needed on this topic. Welcome back. This is Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute, standing in for Lee Lonsbury as guest host. And, yes, they let me control the microphone. That is very dangerous. Excited to be with you again talking about some important issues that we're going to be looking at in the upcoming legislative session it uh, feels like a lot of the fervor over police reform has kind of died down. A lot of attention, of course, was given over the summer to the riots and protests and calls for reform, uh, but the public's attention has shifted. All the while, there have been a number of organizations and advocates continuing to work on the issue and press forward on some of these reforms that the public is very interested in, among them reforming no-knock warrants and when police can actually enter your home. I'm excited to be joined by... Marina Lowe, Legislative and Policy Counsel at the ACLU of Utah. Marina, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So, of course, the ACLU has been uh, involved in these discussions um, on many different issues, but right now we're going to talk about uh, when police can forcibly enter someone's home. This is an issue that uh, our organizations have worked on in past years in Utah, uh, but it has renewed interest for a variety of reasons, including the story of Breonna Taylor uh, that happened shortly after George Floyd, in which uh, police forcibly entered a home. Breonna was not uh, a suspect in anything. She was uh, shot and killed. Um, and it has renewed this conversation uh, across the country, but here in Utah as well. Uh, tell us about ACLU's interest on, on this topic. Why do you feel that there needs to be additional reform on this question of when police can enter people's home using force? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Breonna Taylor case is just such a terrible tragedy on so many fronts and really highlights the real problems involved in allowing officers to engage in these sort of no-knock warrant situations or even knock-and-announce warrant situations where essentially um, the element of surprise is one of the tools that officers are using by going in, usually under cover of night, um, oftentimes either with no announcement or just a quick announcement before they sort of knock down your door. 
And, you know, I think the theory has always been from law enforcement's perspective that that's um, an important tool, the surprise factor, so that they can catch people perhaps in the act of committing a crime or before evidence could be destroyed. But I think that there are real problems um, that, that arise when we engage in these sorts of tactics, when law enforcement uses these tactics. People um, are surprised <laughs> when somebody knocks down their door in the middle of the night, and I think people traditionally um, feel a, a sense of a need to protect their own home, especially uh, during nighttime hours. Um, and I think that's precisely what we saw play out in the case of Breonna Taylor, the 911 calls that were um, reviewed after the fact sort of indicate that Breonna Taylor's um, boyfriend who was with her at the time had no idea who was knocking down the door and shooting at his girlfriend. And, and so I think that um, what we saw there, the tragedy that, that unfolded, is oftentimes what we see in these forcible entry cases. And, you know, it's not unique just to um, Kentucky where that particular situation played out, but we've seen problems with no-knock warrants here in Utah as well um, that I think are prompting a real discussion around how can we reform the law and make sure that we are better protecting people's rights, not only those who are on the receiving end of the warrant, but frankly, also the officers who have to um, execute these warrants, who are also putting their lives at risk when they um, choose to, to, you know, knock down somebody's door in the middle of the night. To that exact point, as you mentioned, Marina, uh, Utah's not immune to these instances. Perhaps the most well-known uh, or notable case was a few years ago, Matthew David Stewart in Ogden. Uh, whose uh, home was uh, invaded uh, at night. Uh, he was sleeping in his bedroom. Uh, officers were entering because Matthew was suspected of growing some uh, marijuana plants in his basement. Yes, illegal, but raising the question, is it really appropriate that officers bang down the door? These officers were not in uniform, T-shirts and jeans. Uh, Matthew alleged later uh, after the altercation that uh, he was surprised. He thought maybe it was a gang or someone busting down his door. The firefight ensued. Five officers injured. One died of his wounds, tragically, over yeah. a, a warrant dealing with drugs. And, and these, not, uh, these are not uh, exceptions. In fact, the data from the state of Utah consistently, year over year, shows that the vast majority of these forcible entry warrants pertain to drug offenses, uh, 75% yeah. on, on average over the years. Uh, this is a, a relic of the war on drugs. So there's going to be legislation uh, moving forward in the upcoming session. Uh, our organizations have been working on this. Give us a little synopsis of uh, what uh, you know the ACLU of Utah would like to see changed and what this legislation might contain. Yeah, and, and if I can, can I just take two seconds, too, to say that Please. our two organizations have partnered on legislation in this area over the past couple of years, at least two times, as I recall, um, once to require some reporting. You mentioned the data shows that uh, these types of warrants are most often used for drug offenses, and that was the result of legislation that we worked on. And then additionally, legislation to try and get at this question around when can officers use forcible entry warrants and should they be used simply for drug possession. Um, so we did work on that a few years ago, and I think what this new legislation introduced this year, forcible entry and warrant amendments, will do is to sort of continue to work in that area and really specify that these no-knock warrants should be used only in the most extreme of circumstances, notably when there is serious risk of imminent harm to somebody's life, um, those are the types of instances where we might feel like it could be warranted to execute a no-knock warrant, but certainly not simply for drug charges, which, of course, was also at the root of the Breonna Taylor case.
Now, the the allegation is that there's no-knock warrants, which is when, of course, there's no knocking, there's no announcing, but there's also this idea of knock and announce, right? Police open right. up, and then they later barge. Now, a lot of defense attorneys and, and uh, others that we've spoken with have alleged over the years that the knock and announce uh, approach is really a... Uh, a kind of a token gesture, right? That you, that you knock and announce so quickly before then banging open the door so as to negate the kind of advance warning that that, that approach actually requires if you don't have a judge's permission to do a no-knock. What would this legislation be seeking to, to change as it pertains to knocking and announcing to make sure that there is adequate notice? Yeah, well, I think it really tries to specify what that procedure actually looks like. And so there's language that would require that an officer identify themselves, that they knock loudly and demand admission at least three separate times, waiting at least 30 seconds in between each time. Um, so, so those sorts of very specific guidelines. And I think, you know, this is trying to respond to the fact that we see from defense attorneys, as you mentioned, that oftentimes a no-knock and a knock-and-announce are essentially the same thing. But also in the Breonna Taylor case, this was sort of a point of contention. Officers claimed that they had indeed executed a knock-and-announce because the order was changed at the last minute. Um, however, you know, on the other side, there were allegations that the police never announced themselves. Um, so I think that by making it abundantly clear what steps officers need to take before they actually knock down somebody's door, it will hopefully at least lessen the confusion that might arise after the fact. Lessen the confusion and save, you know, lives uh, and decrease the risk to those lives, both for those inside the home and, as we pointed out, for the for the officers themselves. Such an important issue. Uh, we'll be, of course, watching that in the upcoming legislative session Marina Lowe, Legislative and Policy Counsel at the ACLU of Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Guys, stick with us on the next topic. We're going to continue this conversation because out of all these reform efforts, two things is what people are demanding, transparency and accountability. Those are both reflected in the next issue we're going to talk about and another bill you're going to see in the upcoming session. Stick with us. Welcome back to KSL News Radio. I'm your guest host for the day, Connor Boyack, President of Libertas Institute here in Utah. And we've been talking about some controversial, important, and, and very urgent and relevant topics that are going to be considered by the legislature in the upcoming session that begins in January. We're continuing that trend in our final segment for the hour. We're joined by Steve Burton uh, with the Utah Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, glad to be here. So, Steve, uh, all of the concerns that have been shared and expressed over the summer, I think, boil down to two main key words. The first is transparency, and the second is accountability. I think fundamentally that is what the public has been demanding of law enforcement, however they've expressed it and whatever forum and however articulate that may be. Uh, but if you summarize uh, what, what people are kind of clamoring for, really it boils down to those two issues. One of the uh, other bills that will be addressed in the upcoming legislative session I think really reflects uh, you know, those two words. But before we talk about what's being proposed, let's talk a little bit about the problem. So you as a, a defense attorney are often working with prosecutors and police uh, on behalf of your clients. Uh, now, what happens when there is an officer with, you know, engaging in misconduct or use of force or violating their policy? Uh, it seems to me that there's nothing consistent happening around the state. So, so walk us through a little bit of that problem so we can understand what this bill is trying to address. Yeah, so from a defense attorney perspective, our job is to try to find out if there's 
uh, any problems with the government's case if there seem to be weaknesses and and you know if there's a chance that uh, that our client didn't do something we're supposed to see what kind of evidence supports our client's position it's a fundamental constitutional right and so part of that is uh, based upon a case uh, called uh, the Brady case Brady v Maryland which requires that uh, prosecutors and law enforcement have to disclose if there have been issues with law enforcement officers that may call into question the credibility of their testimony. So we should be able to know if the officer has lied in the past or if there's things that the officer has done, uh, which would call into question whether or not what they're saying is true. And um, from a, a defense attorney perspective, it's been really difficult to obtain information about police discipline when we're handling specific cases. And the more that we've looked into it, we've found that um, different uh, law enforcement agencies have different policies across the state. So you drive from Salt Lake City over to West Valley, you know, once you cross that street into West Valley, they're going to have a whole different set of policies. And we found that a lot of departments will have a policy where officers can purge their record after two years. And so when we are requesting these records to see if an officer has ever lied or has violated policy or violated the law and been disciplined in the past, um, you know, depending on what agency we're uh, looking at, they may have a completely different policy than the one right next door. And so it's very difficult for us to find out where there's these problem officers who, uh, you know, are the minority, but do affect our clients' rights when they're claiming that they're innocent and that the officer's lying. And uh, there's not really a good way for us to find out if that's true. Now, uh, a few years ago, our organizations uh, with others worked on the body camera law that now exists uh, requiring police agencies that own body cameras to use them in various circumstances and not you know, interfere with the the, the footage and, and things like that. And uh, one of the talking points to push that bill forward was that prior to that law, there was a patchwork of policies. Some law enforcement agencies had a policy about body cameras. Some didn't. Some required chain of custody to make sure that you know no one deleted or tampered with the footage. Others didn't. And so the argument was made, and, and persuasively and successfully so, right, that we need a statewide standard that all agencies abide by so that your experience with justice does not differ if you're in Sandy or St. George or Salt Lake City. Uh, I think the same case is being made here on this issue, Steve, that uh, if you're dealing with a, an officer in one of those agencies or anywhere else across the state, you should not have a, a substantively different experience as a potential victim of excessive force or you know police misconduct if you, you know, luck out and you're in one city that has a good policy or you live, you know, two minutes in the other direction and you're in a different city that doesn't have a bad one. So what is this bill then proposing to do in that vein to kind of improve the, the, the process you've described and make sure that there's a more holistic approach to, to this kind of issue? Yeah, I, that's exactly right. So it's it's the differences in policies from department to department, and then it's how uh, complaints are currently handled right now that we've found out seem to be the problem. Um, so what this bill does is it tries to standardize the procedure that occurs after somebody makes a complaint, uh, and and specifically it puts into it would put into statute certain time limits. So if a complaint is made, it should be assigned to a supervisor within 
72 hours. Um, and then, then that supervisor has 45 days to investigate that complaint. Uh, they can ask for an extension. Um, and then the other main part of it is uh, addressing how complaints are, are investigated or handled is uh, what we've done is we've created kind of a list of issues where if a complaint is made about those issues dealing with uh, the integrity of the officer or a, a public interest issue such as use of force or, or um, false testimony, um, those types of issues must be reported to police officer standards and training post uh, the agency that's in charge of that. And whether or not those complaints are sustained or um, unsustained, if, if the officer is even cleared, that has to be reported to post. Because what's happening right now is sometimes police officers will be friends with their supervisor. I mean, they work closely together and oftentimes the supervisor doesn't want to get somebody in trouble and risk their career. And so these things, most policies require the supervisor to do the investigation. And, and there's no outside independent agency taking a look at it. So this is just going to require that when complaints are made on those issues, that information is recorded. There's a procedure that it goes through. It's sent to an independent agency, which we think should be post. And then post can develop its criteria uh, with its knowledge of, of policing to determine when a red flag pops up. So, you know, we've seen this with lots of cases. Uh, you know, you see this dog bite case in Salt Lake City where um, after reviewing body camera from 27 different uh, incidents using uh, canines, Mm-hmm. They they determined that they wanted to refer, I, I think, it was 16 or 17 of those cases for criminal prosecution. So um, those types of things we are hoping will be more quickly identified if somebody's receiving receipt, uh, repeated complaints. Even if they're unsustained, uh, an outside agency will be able to determine if the agency themselves might not be handling it appropriately. I think, Steve, it's as Representative Berkland said earlier in the program, that so many good officers out there trying to do everything above board recognize that some reforms are needed so that the bad apples can be weeded out, so to speak, and that the broader profession and those trying to do the right thing uh, aren't kind of bogged down by the ones that are you know, not doing things right. The more that we can reform the system to have transparency and accountability, Uh, I think the better it is for everyone. Steve Burton's with the Utah Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Connor. Well, stick with us on the uh, next segment, you guys. We're going to be talking about, is Utah actually a free market state? Are Are we really? And if not, what needs to change? There's a lot of examples that need fixing, and we're going to talk about them on the flip side. Stick with KSL News Radio. We'll see you on the other side. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? 
in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.